practicing meditation, we're bringing our mind to one-pointedness. Focusing attention on a single object, the in and out breath. With the continuous presence of mindfulness then one-pointedness becomes established. Eka kata jitta. The mind becomes firm and calm. It's the opposite of our more normal experience of the mind moving from object to object through different mental states, different preoccupations. So this is a practice we're developing on a daily basis. So we need to develop mindfulness, develop some calm in order to contemplate, understand the Dhamma. We need to learn to practice mindfulness, bring the mind to calm in all postures, sitting, walking, standing, lying down. Because similarly the kilesas rooted in greed, anger, delusion, the hindrances, they can arise in any posture at any time. Take over the mind, bring up different kinds of suffering. Ajahn Chah over and over again emphasized the Appanaka Patipata, the practices that are never wrong, Indriya Sangwara, restraint regarding the sense faculties, using mindfulness and wisdom to guard over our sense doors as we see, we hear, we touch, we smell, we taste, to be guarded with mindfulness, the amount of sense contact we have and the type of sense contact and to bring up the quality of mindfulness to guard particularly over sense contact that stimulates greed, hatred and delusion. Not to dwell on sense contact that will stir up the defilements. Not to dwell on <coughs> attractive objects 
that bring perceptions and memories that we carry around with us. See, when you come out to the meal, pleasant looking food, nice tastes, or sweet drinks, sweets, people, particularly members of the opposite sex, they bring up different perceptions which stimulate the kilesis. If you dwell on them with our unguarded senses, when you go back to your kuti, then those images and memories follow you and give you more, more trouble, more suffering. Some images follow us from years before, some just from one day, one hour before. Or sense contact that gives rise to displeasure, aversion, same. If we already have a perception of aversion towards someone and then we keep looking at them, looking at what they're doing, what they listening to them, what they say, looking at the way they behave, then of course it will stir up the heart. If we're unguarded in our watching or listening, we go back to our kuti and the mind is full of anger. Delusion, you know, endless chatting about worldly subjects that just fill the mind with different information, complexity, gives rise to more doubt, uncertainty maybe, gives rise to skepticism or interest in things that are not valuable for the Dhamma and not supportive of the Dhamma. So we walk around with all kinds of information and ideas in the head which lead to more confusion, more delusion. Sense contact sense contact and mindfulness of sense contact, guarding the senses. It's a practice that's never wrong. And always to be aware of what our eyes are doing, what our ears are doing, our nose, our tongue, or the body, what it's doing. So we reflect as well what's appropriate, what's supportive of the practice, what's dangerous to the practice. What are we letting our mind dwell on? What preoccupations we're filling the mind up with? The same with Bhojane Matanyuta, learning to be restrained and modest in our consumption of food 
and by extension the other requisites. Food is a vital area of practice because it affects our sense of well-being, can affect our mood, affect how much energy we have. If we eat too much, too indulgent, we become sluggish. If we eat too little too often, that can be a problem as well. So learning to eat the right amount, the hardest practice of all. And not to indulge, not to take a lot because a lot's available, and just take the right amount. Not to always take what we like, always seeking gratification in food. Sometimes learning just to accept a normal amount of food and even ignore things that we might particularly like. It's a practice of mindfulness, it's also an attitude towards the requisites. Chakarayanu Yoga dedication to wakefulness, awakening the mind, bringing up mindfulness in all postures, not indulging in sleep, drowsiness, but really putting forth effort. So when we're on our own at our kutis, managing how much we sleep and developing a skillful attitude around sleep, learning to be mindful as we fall asleep with a good attitude to see sleep more like a medicine than just a way to blank out or indulge. Setting a good attitude before we go to sleep and then when we wake up ready to carry on practicing. These three practices together are never wrong. So we've always got something more we can be doing, turning to the development of mindfulness and then contemplating, wisely reflecting on our experience. Often we're having to frustrate our own moods and desires. We don't want to practice sometimes. We don't want to be mindful. We want to just let things go. We don't want to be restrained. We don't want to be careful. We don't want to be awake. There's all kinds of desires that the practice will come up against. So we have to learn how to make the mind strong and rise up above some of our own desires. When we do it, we can see we have more self-control, we get a little bit more energy in the practice, we become braver, more courageous with our own practice. We learn how to manage things better for ourselves, become more independent of our own kilesas, so we tend to feel better. Even if we haven't completely gone beyond them, at least we get some 
strength, some encouragement in our practice. Zola Bo Chao is always emphasizing these three qualities, especially when we have time on retreat, when we're dependent on our own practice more than group practice. Reflect back on the Buddha, our teacher, how many obstacles he had to overcome before he could become the Buddha. How tired he must have been, how many desires and attachments he must have had to overcome right up to the very, very end, the very night of his enlightenment. Still he had to deal with Mara, tempting him, scolding him, putting him down and even claiming the seat under the Bodhi's tree for himself. Mara said, this is my seat. But the Buddha was sure of his own Barami, said, no, you don't have the Barami for this seat. They say the earth goddess, Devata, she came and water came out of her hair and washed Mara and all his armies away, symbolizing the effort, the good effort, the sacrifice, the renunciation of the Buddha bringing up mindfulness to go against all his desires and attachments to transcend the world. So that's the, that's the teacher we have, the teacher who we can reflect on. It's our good fortune to have been born in a time when the Buddhist teachings are still here, we can still practice them. We have the support of the laity, we have the place to practice, the opportunity. Part of our motivation for practice is maybe gratitude to our parents who are our first teachers and then to our teachers, our Dhamma teachers. We've had the chance to listen to Dhamma, to learn this path and this, this way of practice. We could have been born in a time when there was no Buddhism. We may could have been born and our parents weren't there to look after us. While our parents are still alive, we have the chance to practice and dedicate our practice back to them. And the chance to practice to repay the efforts of our teachers. You know, the Buddha himself said there's no way of repaying the Buddha the same as practice. You know, all the material things that people can offer to the Sangha, to support the Sangha or support the Buddha, 
nothing, he said, nothing compares with the offering of the practice itself. Developing mindfulness, keeping sila, developing mindfulness, developing samadhi, contemplating the Dhamma to develop insight. This is the way the Buddha encouraged monks to repay with gratitude their debt to him, their debt to their parents. In the time of the Buddha, the Venerable Sariputta was praised as one monk, a role model of one with gratitude and one keen to repay, pay back something to those who had given to him. Gata nyu, gata wetita. The Buddha said, somebody with these two qualities, a very rare person in the world, but to have these qualities, gratitude and the wish to repay, this is one of the 38 highest blessings, your auspicious blessings. These are higher dhammas, have a very profound effect on the mind. Gives us the strength maybe to carry on in our practice and makes the mind more refined, more subtle than normal when we have a sense of gratitude. They always talk about the Venerable Sat Sariputta. An example of his gratitude is the, the old Brahmin who used to come to the Jetavana and weed the walkways just to always be weeding the grass. He's old and all the monks thought he was untrainable, so nobody wanted to ordain him, even though he requested to ordain and train as a bhikkhu. They thought he was too old and past it. So in the assembly of monks, the Buddha said, is there anyone out of gratitude might ordain this Brahmin? Only Sariputta put his hand up and said, oh, this Brahmin he once, many, many years ago, when I was walking in the village, he gave me a spoonful of rice towards my meal for that day. So out of gratitude, I will ordain him, I'll train him. Once he ordained, the Brahmin became very humble. Rata, the Brahmin, he became foremost in being easy to train, easy to teach, very humble, always willing to listen, to do what he was instructed. Complete opposite of the perception everybody had of him. They all thought he was old and untrainable, stubborn. He wasn't. I think he once asked the Buddha when the Buddha said, he was talking about samsara and all the beings in samsara and the, and the Buddha has compassion for all the beings. 
What are what do you mean by beings? And the Buddha said, those who are stuck in their candors, the five candors, form, feeling, perception, thought formations, sense consciousness. Beings by definition are stuck in their candors. The only people beyond the candors are enlightened beings who've reached Nibbana. Everyone else is a being, whether they're a human being or in heaven or in hell. As long as we're still attached to the candors, then we're stuck and we're a being, a being who is stuck. The Buddha is teaching beings how to unstick themselves, get themselves out of this attachment to suffering based on the attachment to the candors. Sariputta also never forgot his mother, even though his mother had always been against his ordination from the very beginning, being a disciple of Mahabrahma, what you might call a Hindu these days, not a Buddhist. She didn't have faith in the Buddha. She thought her son was going in the wrong way, wasting his time. But he still had gratitude for her, so when he got to the end of his life, maybe 80 years old, she's maybe almost 100 years old, but still alive. Sariputta had just a few days left before he was going to die. He knew with his psychic powers he would die. So he went home. His last task was to teach the Dhamma to his mother. They travelled home to Nalanda, his mother saw him coming and smiled and thought, ah, finally he's seen the light, he's going to disrobe and come back. Finally he's got good sense. She didn't yet understand. He was actually coming home to die. He was sick, so he went to his, stayed in his old bedroom, the very room he'd been born in by his mother, Sari. Buddha means son or offspring, so he's the offspring of Sari. And she tended on him, she could still cook, she brought him food in the morning. But at night all the deities came to pay respects because they heard the news he was going to die. In the daytime it was monks, in the nighttime it was the deities. So one by one the devas would come in and his mother would see these bright lights radiating, emanating from his bedroom. But she didn't go in out of respect, just saw this great light one after another. And at the end of the night the brightest of all the lights came. In the morning she asked him, well, what are all these bright, radiant lights? coming out of your room last night. So I was just speaking the truth. He said, oh, all the devas 
coming to pay respects, I'm going to die soon. Being one who's attained Nibbāna, they have respect, they want to come and show their reverence. And she said, oh, what about at the very end, that brightest of all the bright lights then, who was that? She said, well, that was Mahābrahma. Mahābrahma was her own god that she worshipped. It finally dawned on her that her son was something special, really was a sage, spiritual master. Even her own god that she worshipped came to pay respects to her son. So finally her own attachment to her own views, her own stubbornness started to subside. And then he could teach her the Dhamma. She became a disciple of the Buddha before he died. The gratitude and the, the wish to pay back to those who have helped us, this is something goes hand in hand with right view and the practice. And what else, as a bhikkhu, what else can we do to repay those who have helped us and those who have supported us? Let's just keep practicing. If you have trouble with a certain kilesa, you're out of gratitude for those who raised you, your parents, those who have taught you, and the lay people who support us. Maybe you, you consider it, and that brings up some energy to really want to put effort into getting up early or staying up late, sitting meditation for longer, walking meditation for longer, contemplating the Dhamma, doing things that are difficult to do. Nobody's under any delusions. It's difficult to meditate. It's difficult to practice and go against our defilements. But it can be done. We can practice. As human beings, we can do that. As we practice, we can share the fruits of our practice with those around us and then back to our families, relatives, however far away they are. We can repay our teachers, even Ajahn Chah, who's been dead for 20 years now. Out of respect for him, we can uphold his standard of practice, keep the Vinaya dedicate ourselves to the practice of mindfulness. Every moment is an opportunity to develop the practice. It's a practice of cultivation, constantly returning to <coughs> the basics, cultivating sila, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating wisdom by investigating the Dhamma. You're contemplating, really come to see these truths, the impermanence of this body and this mind and the world is a very uncertain place, nothing fixed. Our own moods, totally uncertain, the conditions that arise, pass away. Whatever the obstacle we're facing, the doubt, the uncertainty, the worry, the fear, anxiety, 
whatever the mind is clinging onto that allows the hates they're all impermanent none of it is a source of happiness all of it is to be let go of us not self doesn't belong to us Ajahn Chah always encouraging us to develop the mind, the even mind, the mind in the middle, the mind of equanimity towards our experiences, pleasant, unpleasant. The words of other people, pleasant, unpleasant. The experiences we have, we get what we want or we don't get what we want. It's hot, it's cold, it's late, it's early, we feel strong, we feel weak. People treat us nicely, people ignore us, people treat us badly. We can't control the range of experiences that the world brings us very much, but we can control our minds, bring up the evenness of mind that comes with mindfulness and wisdom, maintain our calm, maintain our equanimity. The more we do that, this is the way that will lead to the end of suffering, the end of the defilements. One moment of equanimity can completely disperse a mood of greed, hatred or delusion. Just learning to keep returning to equanimity when the mind would rather follow Kilesa. We don't let it, we just keep coming back to mindfulness, allowing things to be and then letting go. This is what all of uh, our teachers have practiced. Those living, those who passed away. The reason they become teachers is because they've learned to develop equanimity towards conditions through the practice. Being very patient, determined, not giving up. Little by little, raising up the level of the mind. The mind becomes more refined through this practice. When we enter the monastery, the mind is very coarse. It's easily stirred up, easily shaken by events, situations, different experiences we have. We have ups and downs. When we come into the monastery, the mind is all over the place, easily blown excited, bored, restless, dull, happy, depressed, all over the place. But if you keep practicing little by little through experience, you learn to balance them out, become, become more even. Whatever else life has to bring to us, at least our mind can meet it with some mindfulness, evenness of mind, balance, equanimity. And that's something really valuable to us. This is what our teachers practice right to the end. We heard the news the other day, Lumpu Supa died. And they say right to the last moment of his life, right to the end, mind was very even with the different 
situations he was in, the degeneration of his body, losing his eyesight, his hearing, his heart getting weaker, the body as a whole getting weaker. In the end he had a heart attack. They guessed that his wish was to just return to the monastery. He couldn't speak. But when they were talking to him, saying that when they thought he wanted to return to the monastery, he just raised his arm, made a noise. It's because he has equanimity. He's content, he's not clinging on to life or resisting the fact that he was going to die, just accepting. Aging and death are just normal processes, parts of life. And his mind well trained in equanimity, so able to meet with that experience without being shaken or afraid or worried, just calmly, contentedly, allowing the canvas to fade away, break apart, end. This is how someone who's dedicated their life to the practice dies with calm, with equanimity. Not afraid, not confused, even though there's pain and discomfort, not letting that affect the mind. Trained in meditation, they know how to turn the mind to a wholesome object, a meditation object. Maintain mindfulness, one-pointedness, not get caught into the different negative states that might arise. The fear, the worry, the anxiety. The more we develop this path, the more we, good we can do ourselves, the more we can be example to others and help others the more we can help ourselves. So the next period of practice we'll have more free time to develop our own practice or at our kutis or in the hall here. So make use of that time, make use of that opportunity. Keep developing more mindfulness, investigating the Dhamma, develop more equanimity. Practice on a little bit longer until it's the time for the Patimoka. <laughs>